sound, sound, okay? All right, let's go before the Lord and ask for his blessing. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time that you've given us again to gather around the message of Christ, the message of the cross, the message of our salvation. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We pray for understanding for everyone, for myself, and also for those who shall hear the message and are hearing the message. We honor you, glorify you for all that you've done and are doing and shall do. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning, good morning, good morning, everyone who is joining us. We are going to take a detour from the Old Testament and go back to Romans. We are going to be in the book of Romans, chapter 7. Romans is our main text. We are working our way through the book of Romans. And this is our message number 35. And... That's coming from Romans chapter 7. I pray you have been listening to the messages. And I'm going to say our messages are not the typical messages that you hear from a lot of preachers. Everyone preaches according to what God has called them to do and to be. He prepared me to be the kind of preacher that I am. And that means we do not do 15-minute messages or 20-minute messages because there's not much time in 20 minutes to develop the arguments and to connect things. And that is why people go for 20, 30 years in church and still do not know what really is the gospel and how the different pieces come together. And it requires teaching and teaching requires time. And so, be patient, listen to the messages, and go back and re-listen to the messages. You cannot exhaust the stuff that the Lord gives me in one sitting. There's no way. So, I highly encourage people, <clears throat> excuse me, to go back and re-listen to the messages because there's a lot of interweaving of ideas. There's a lot of crocheting that happens in my messages. So I pray that the Lord will help you with the understanding. And our message is from Romans 7, verses 1 to 6. And I'm reading from the New King James. The apostle writes and says, Oh, do you not know, brethren? For I speak to those who know the law. That the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress, but if her husband dies, she's free from that law so that she is no adulteress, 
though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter, and that is the word of the Lord. There's a lot of stuff to glean, but I just wanted to make an announcement to the whole world that Berean has a new baby. We were blessed with a new baby, Miss Ellie Smith. She came last week and uh, we are blessed that the Lord has remembered us this way. And we pray that she will grow to be uh, one of those who bear the testimony of Christ. So everything is fine. Both mom and the baby are well. And we are praying the same for their father. <laughs> Usually it's the fathers who pass out, right? <laughs> No, they are all doing fine. So praise God for that. But going to our message, our message has three titles. Number one, the redeems relationship to the law or the believer's relationship to the law. And number two, freed from the law or Released from the law, freed from the law or released from the law. And number three, those who know the law. Those who know the law. And this message is one where I could have given ten titles because it is just that message and passage that carries many wonderful things about the law and the believer's relationship to it. But before we get to the text under consideration, we need to know how and why we got to Romans 7, because Romans 7 is not the beginning of the book of Romans, and neither is it the beginning of Paul's treatment or reference to the law. What has happened is that Paul had a lot of gospel issues, gospel ideas to discuss, to teach. And one cannot teach them all and well in one sitting. So he had to systematically build up a lot of understanding in other areas and in other sections in the matter of the gospel, the issues of the gospel. So what Paul has done here 
can be likened to a cook or a chef. The chef do not cut all the veggies, tomatoes, onions, peppers, simultaneously, as if in a blender, they carefully cut them separately, but with the intention of throwing everything into the same pot at the end to bring the best out of their preparation. So you cut your different things that are putting in there, the peppers, onions, separately with the intention of putting everything together to make the stew. So Paul has essentially been cutting peppers, onions, tomatoes of the gospel and expounding on the different aspects and angles of salvation with the intention of summing all things up in Christ, throwing everything in to finally stew in the pot that is Christ Jesus. Because in Christ, all things consist. In Christ, all things hold. So the different pieces are not detached from Christ, but they have their full meaning and fulfillment in the person of Christ. And so when you taste the Lord, you surely know that he is good. So the gospel is God's preparation. It is God's cooking. Some good and yummy food of salvation for those who can eat it, for those who have been invited to the great banquet. And I'm going to say that the matter of law is that which troubles many children of men. Why is that so? Because the law by its demands by its design, appeals to the flesh. That righteousness can actually be had by obeying it. Also, the law troubles the flesh (laughs) because many and unfortunately professing Christians have not yet understood they have not yet had, understood, and submitted to God's own arguments about the law, its function, its relation to Christ before and after the cross, and consequently, its relation to the redeemed on account of the same. We relate as the redeemed to the cross, looking to Christ and being in Christ, not separately from Christ. So if we should understand our relation to the law, it has to be 
in what God says about Jesus. How Christ relates to the law is how we should relate to the law. And you can tell whether one believes God's testimony by their views about this matter because God has not been silent about it. God has not been silent about the law in relation to Christ and also in relation to those who are in Christ, the redeemed. God has extensively and repeatedly taught this matter in both types and shadows as we have faithfully expounded and continue to expound from our Old Testament messages, but also, as you will find out today, very taught clearly from the New Testament. So in Romans 6, Paul has taught that the redeemed are dead to the law, they're dead to sin, and have been made alive to God in Christ Jesus, who died and resurrected. In other words, the redeemed are to reckon or to look for their status before God in the same way that God sees Christ. Because he only sees them in him. God united all the elect, all the redeemed in Christ's death and in his resurrection. And this is how God determined to deal with their sin collectively as a body because Jesus did not die for a single person. Jesus did not go a million times on the cross to die for people continuously. Every time that a person is saved, Jesus being crucified over and over and over and over. The Bible says by his one offering of himself, he perfected forever the sanctified. So Christ died united to his body, united to the body that is the church, because their sins were all reckoned to him. They were charged, they were imputed to him, and this was the cause of his death. And so Romans 6 verse 7 says, in the light of that, in the light of Christ dying, for he who has died has been freed from sin. He who has died has been freed from sin at the very basic human level because sin requires an actively sinful fleshly body to do its bidding, to do its work. So the person who has died has no more sinful inclinations of the flesh because the flesh has no more power to act out those sinful passions. But what does that mean at the higher spiritual level? How is it that a sinner like you and me 
are said to have died and have been freed from sin when we are still here eating fries, chicken wings, and ice cream, and still sinning. We are still sinning. And yet God says, we have died and we've been freed from sin. How could that be? How can you have died and still be alive and be free from sin and yet still be sinning? How are we to understand that? It is only because of Christ. But how could that be true? How could we be considered to be dead and yet be free from sin and by who? Who says that? From the gospel testimony, we could only be dead, reckoned to be dead, with Christ if we were in union with him when he came. And that means as he died, Christ Jesus also represented us. He was not dying a death for himself. He was dying a representative death. So the key words to try and ferret this thing out are union and representation. Without union and representation, one is bound to condition salvation or the doing of the sinner in one way or another, it does not matter what they say is the condition that the sinner has to meet. If an understanding of union and representation is lacking, then you're going to hear some conditionalism of sorts, even coming from those who call themselves sovereign grace. So by dying with Christ, the implication also is that the transaction of salvation was done then at the cross, not when you and I showed up and believed. But the question, who says we died with Christ? And who says we have been set free from sin? It is God. This is a pronouncement by God. And how does he know that? And who gives him the authority to say that? Because he is God. And he determined to do this matter of salvation in this way. And so God does not justify people because of their faith. But because they are in Christ. And because of his faithfulness. Because of his shed blood. And so to say God justifies people at faith 
is to remove the complete suretyship and representation of Christ and making it only as enabling salvation, a salvation then to be completed when the sinner agrees with God, when they hear the preaching of the gospel. And that is a very low view of the matter and design of this salvation project. Secondly, something important to understand that is not being taught faithfully about the matter of salvation. The transaction of salvation was not between God and those that he was saving. Let me, let me repeat that again. The transaction of salvation was not between God and James. The transaction of salvation was between God and Christ. For those whom Christ represented as their surety before the Father. Just as my buying of a house is not between my children and the bank, but is between me and the bank. And yet I did it for the benefit of my family, for my for the benefit of my wife and children, for them to have a home. But my children are not on the mortgage contract. And yet they benefit from that contract. My children don't get to pay a single penny to live in the house. So their living in the house is not dependent on them doing anything, contributing anything. Even believing that this is their house, that's not the condition for them to be in the house. They are in the house because I put my signature to the mortgage contract. So we are in Christ not because we believed, but because of him who stood for us. It is him who put his own signature to the contract of serving God's people. So we were not on the contract to do our salvation, but we benefit from the work of him who was a signatory to that contract to do it, and that's Christ. Okay? So in seeing Jesus crucified, Seeing Jesus in the grave, Christ raised, Christ seated. God was not just seeing his son. He was seeing the whole church with him, taking along with him every step of the way. This is a very important theological understanding. So as Christ 
was condemned on the cross. As Christ was punished, the whole body of Christ was punished with him. So as Christ was justified by the resurrection from the dead, the church was also justified with him. There's no way that you can talk gospel and not say Jesus justified his church. Otherwise, he could not have risen. By reason of union and representation and satisfaction of the debt that was owed. So it's impossible for Jesus to resurrect if the church was not also justified because of union and representation. So I'm going to say those who argue that Jesus did not justify anyone when he died do not understand the gospel. They do not. They do not understand the matter. That's the simplest thing that I could say. They do not get it. God is not justifying people as and when they show up. Because they are not part to the contract. The debt is discharged when the payment is made. So justification happened when their representative came and made the payment union and representation. Remember, justification is a judicial matter. It is a court matter, a court case. And God is not convening and reconvening a new court session with each sinner who comes to faith as to justify them and imputing their sins to Christ who already died and resurrected. Because you see, if you were justified two weeks ago, then it means your sins were imputed to Christ two weeks ago. But if you were justified and your sins were imputed to Christ two weeks ago, it means you have to keep Christ on the cross. So that's Roman Catholicism. Christ has to be crucified over and over and over and over and over. No, that's not the gospel. The Holy Spirit is out to hunt and bring to faith and repentance those that Christ already justified in his death and by his death. That's what is happening. So Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. So the result of being united with Christ in his death and resurrection is that sin shall not have dominion over the redeemed. No dominion for it to condemn them. It is not saying the redeemed shall not sin anymore. No, that's not the argument. The argument is it shall not have dominion to Condemn them. But why? Paul says, for you are not under law, but under grace. 
That's the difference. You are not under law, but under grace. Which means if you remain under law, sin will always be having dominion. And that is a big problem for many, especially in the redeemed camp. In the reformed camp, I meant to say. And others who, again, unfortunately call themselves sovereign grace. They do not hear these statements and arguments that God has made. They know that these arguments are in the text. But they have to default to their confession of faith. But I say, it, it is because of unbelief that they continue to press for Moses. They continue to press for Moses to be binding on the conscience of those who are the redeemed. So the result of dying and resurrecting with Christ means the believer's victory and dealings with the law was already completed. Because it's completed, they are not under the law. That was the purpose of union, the purpose of Christ establishing the new covenant. The elect did not go into the New Testament into the new covenant because they repented. Because that's what justification and faith would imply. That the church only enters into the new covenant when someone comes to faith. That's not true. The whole church body was put into the new covenant because of election and redemption. Okay? Because of election and redemption. So Christ Jesus is not under law by reason of his satisfaction of it. And by reason of his resurrection. And so those who died and resurrected with him are not under the law for the same reason they satisfied the law in him and by him and are resurrected and seated with him. And those who are still laboring under the Judaistic prejudices, tendencies or influences who come screaming and say, well, what you've just said is rank antinomianism and I call their rants Unbelief. And unbelief is a much bigger problem for a sinner than what they call antinomianism. It's much a bigger problem than halotry. You can ask Rehab because halotry, Rehab with the halotry found itself in Romans in Hebrews 11. So people's unbelief shows itself in how they say is the believer's 
relationship to the law. That was always the issue if you read much of the New Testament. That's how people show their unbelief of the gospel. It's how, what they say about the believer's relationship to the law. The Judaizers think their morality somehow is giving, is a giving of something to the law, a giving something back to God, earning some points by which to please him. But no, not at all. There's nothing that a sinner can give to the law, can give to God, that is not already given by Christ. Absolutely nothing. God is pleased by Christ. God is pleased by faith in his son because that is what honors the work of his son and the glory of his name and the glory of God's purpose in the son. But of course, there are going to be objections to the matter of law. There are always going to be objections. But you see that in Romans chapter 6, when Paul makes the exhortation to a life informed by gospel truth, he does not appeal to the law, but to grace. He appeals to union with Christ, to dying and resurrecting with Christ. That is his appeal. And that is what we are arguing. We are saying, as Paul is arguing, that the exhortation to believers is not based on law, but on their already established standing or relationship with Christ and in Christ. It is in grace, not law, that the sinner finds the ability and the freedom to do that which is pleasing to God. It's in grace and not in law. Let's hear Romans 6, verse 14 again. Paul says, For sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under law but under grace. Sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under law but under grace. And that argument was not expounded, was just stated as a matter of fact in passing without much theological support. So Paul knows this. So he is going to revisit that argument so that he may put more light to it so that he may put more meat to the bones. Connect the theological pieces together to support that statement. And with that, we enter Romans 7. So Romans 7 is a development of that argument from Romans chapter 6. Now he gives us the breakdown of the theological understanding and says Romans 7 verse 1. Or do you not know 
brethren. For I speak to those who know the law. That the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. You see the language of dominion? That's the same word that Paul used in Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. So verse 1 of Romans 7 is carrying over from that thinking and saying that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. The law has dominion. He says this matter that I am discussing is only for those who know the law. And I do not think that Paul meant that this was only for the Jews Necessarily, the Jews were under the law because even those under the Roman law would have understood this simple matter of the law and of the law of marriage. But his point is, this argument of the believer's death to the law and its attendant implications is better understood is better appreciated by those who understand the law. And that is a very important point and qualification because many a time these arguments about law are being made by people who are zealous for God but do not know the law. They do not understand the law. The Jews were under the law, but they did not understand it. Thus, it takes the gospel for one, to understand the law. It takes the Holy Spirit for one to understand the law. It takes regeneration for one to understand the law in the gospel sense. Because if they had understood the nature of the law, then they could not ever say the redeemed are still under the law for their rule of life as many, unfortunately, still are saying in our day and time. Let's see verse 1 again, Romans 7. Paul says, Oh, do you not know, brethren, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? That is the very basic principle of the law, that the law or laws of the land only have dominion to rule over a person as long as he or she lives. And this is important because I've lost many close people to me in the past months and few years, and I'm very aware of the truth of this matter. And there are a number of implications to that statement Number one, the law has jurisdiction only in the place in which it was given to rule. And that means the law of God was given to have jurisdiction to those who are on earth and those who are in the flesh. As long as the person continues to subsist in the body of this flesh. Pay attention to this statement. 
dominion of a man as long as he lives. The law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. So as my dear friend and sister Shingi lived, if you still remember my sister in Wisconsin, she actually died a year ago, three days ago. As long as she lived, she had to pay a taxes. She had to try and observe the speed limit. She had to take care of her children as the law stipulates. And if she got a speeding ticket or all the IRS, any monies she had to pay or else they would come after her as long as she lived. Now pause it. Let us take that basic principle and apply it to the law of marriage and then later link it to the gospel argument. So there are three levels here. There are three rungs of the argument. The law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Then Paul is going to apply to marriage. Then from marriage is going to apply to Christ and the gospel. For the woman. So this is how he determined to make the argument. Verse 2. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to a husband as long as he lives. So that's the application. That's the second rung of the argument. So the woman has been married. That implies she has a husband. And being married, she is bound not by her own law but by the law of her husband. But for how long is she bound by the law of her husband? And by the way, this woman is not a 21st century woman. She is not a feminist. The feminist woman has her own ideas. And if you know, you know. But let us develop the point. (laughs) The woman is bound She is answerable to the law as has been laid down or laid out to her by her husband. But for how long? As long as he lives. We could have given that as a title. As long as he lives. That is the duration of it. And that implies That there is an expiration clause in this law of marriage. The clause that is activated when something happens to the husband. Paul continues and says, but if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. If the husband dies, what happens? The expiration clause of the marriage Covenant, contract, law kicks in. And when that happens, does the woman continue to go to the cemetery with dinner and iron clothes, make him his favorite breakfast, French toast, hash browns at the grave? (laughs) No. If she would continue to do that, 
people will say, she is suffering from depression and unresolved grief. She should seek help. And there are many people in the church who need help because of this very thing, because they do not know that their husband died. The husband that they should not be married to is the one that they are taking things to and saying, oh, the law is the rule of life for the believer, the law that died. This woman should have known that the death of her husband released her from the law of her husband and the husband is now in a different space where he has lost jurisdiction over her. He has no more dominion over her. He does not rule over her. She does not go to the cemetery to ask her dead husband for permission to go hang out with her friends. So she does not and should not take any more orders from him who is late, him who is dead and buried. That's clear teaching. That's clear teaching. Even unbelievers know this to be true. But the argument goes beyond just visiting the grave with food and iron clothes. Paul says, verse 3, So then, if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. So these are the two things that she can do wrong if she continues to minister to a dead husband, she's out of her mind. But if the husband is still alive and she goes and gets married to another, she's also out of her mind. She's called an adulteress. So having the understanding of the implications of the two verses, if she, while her husband is still alive, goes on ahead and marries another man, she would be called an adulteress. And that is the implication of that judgment. And what is the implication of that judgment I meant to say? What does the law say to a person who does that? And what should happen in that situation? Leviticus 20, verse 10. Leviticus 20, verse 10. Moses says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, neighbor's wife, the NET says, He who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. 
Not that they should be put to confession. Not that they should be baptized. <laughs> they must be put to death. So the woman who is married and does that is said to have committed adultery. She's an adulteress and would be put to death and should be put to death. That's what the law says. But let us keep hearing. But if a husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress. Though she has married another man. So now we are being given the prescription of how to do things correctly. If a husband dies, the woman is free from that law and cannot be condemned by that law as to be called an adulteress, though she has now married another man. So in other words, the death of the husband is what cancels the power of the law to incriminate and to condemn the woman to death. The death of the husband is what cancels the power of the law to incriminate and to condemn the woman. His death means her freedom to get married to whomever she wants, whomever she likes, without facing any consequences. And many people get so tripped up by these things about marriage and divorce because of the weakness of their own flesh, because of their lack of understanding of the gospel. And there is a lot of legalism that can and has arisen out of this because people do not understand the gospel arguments in these things. This is about gospel conversation. Paul was speaking to a basic and fundamental principle of the law and is using it to build and illustrate a much more important point, which is the believer's relationship to the law. So let us use that argument for what it was given to prove and to do, because that is what God meant to teach by these marriage things. Verse 4, Romans 7. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. So you see Paul's conclusion of the matter. He brings something familiar to them that he may transport them with those arguments to where he wanted them to be as far as understanding of the gospel. Paul was not teaching imperatives of your marriage here and saying, no, you should not get divorced. That's not what Paul is arguing at all. 
That's not what the text is for. Because people who end up not hearing God's arguments and then bringing this teaching to their own marriage situations. It's very frustrating to me. Your marriage does not save anyone. It does not save you. It's only marriage to Christ that saves the sinner. And that's Paul's argument. (laughs) Verse 4 tells us what he meant to teach by that illustration. Paul is actually arguing from the lesser to the greater, from the shadow to the substance. Our marriages are but shadows and are lesser to the substance that is Christ and his marriage to the church. Even as Ephesians say, in terms of linking Adam and Eve to Christ and the church, Paul says this mystery is great. The mystery of marriage is great, but talking about Christ and his church. But let's hear the arguments. Paul says, my brethren, my brothers and sisters, understand this. You also became dead or have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. That is how your marriage was legally ended. It happened by way of the body of Christ. In other words, when Christ died. That is when all the elect died through the law. As far as God is concerned. So the brethren, the believers, the church, all have died to the law. They all died at the same time to the law. How? And which husband died? Who is dying here? Who's dying is changing this relationship. Is it your dying or my dying? Is it the dying of Moses or the dying of Christ? The law died. But how did it die? Because this is the husband that must die first. How did the law die? Paul says it was through the body of Christ. Through the death of Christ. So the death of Christ also brought about the death of the law as a husband. It severed the relationship. It severed the marriage that you would have had to the law. The cross of Christ brought about the death of Moses, the death of the covenant of the law, the death of the end of the law. That's clear teaching. Not the ceremonial law as some of these people who still want to resurrect this husband and say, oh, no, 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 no. That old husband, it was only the ceremonial law, but the moral law still 
stands as a husband. No, that's not true. That's clear teaching to me. Anyone who argues with that needs to sit down or take a nap. Give them something to drink. Even a lollipop. Or if their preacher take the mic away from them because they don't know what they're talking about. The redeemed died to the law by the body of Christ. By the crucifixion of Christ. And what does that mean? What does that imply? Based on what we have discussed, it means the death of Christ removed the law's jurisdiction over the redeemed. The law's authority, the law's power, because the law is not the husband over the bride anymore. Christ is. So the death of Christ took the redeemed to another space, another territory, another country, in which the law has no more dominion, has no more demands, has no more power to command and to condemn. When I became a U.S. citizen, it means my former country, Zimbabwe, lost jurisdiction over me. As simple as that. Because I changed my territory. I changed my citizenship. Those who are of Christ have changed their citizenship. God changed their citizenship. God gave them new passports of a different country with another husband. Yeah, that's clear to me. So Christ, by his death, translated the church out of the world into the heavenly space where Moses does not reign, where Moses has no authority to reign. Moses has no authority. He has no jurisdiction. In the space where Christ rules, and that is why John the Baptist says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. He must increase and I must decrease. The law must decrease. Both Christ has the bride. Moses only reigns unto death. But in Christ, there's no death, but life. Also, by implication, the law is not the rule of life for the redeemed. Because that would be tantamount to going to the cemetery with your bagels and eggs and toast to go feed a dead husband. <laughs> the law cannot be the rule of life for the redeemed. That is a false testimony. This is what Reformed teaching theology teaches. It's false. They are going against very clear teaching. And for me, this is a hill worth dying on. 
I'm not going to make peace with this. Anyone who says otherwise is not telling the truth of the gospel. It does not matter what else they seemingly get right. Or how much they are held in high esteem by other men. They have become an enemy of God's message. I see a lot of poor washer Steve Larson things on Facebook. And people just be posting and reposting them. But when you listen carefully to the teaching of these people, these guys, they are enemies of the cross. So this matter of how a sinner relates to the law is very important to the telling of the story of Christ. And what he accomplished is very critical to the exaltation of his name. But why did God so arrange this principle? Verse 4. Why did God arrange things this way? That you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. God designed this so that the law would come to an end. The law would have an expiration date on the death of Christ. And the reason being so that the church may be legally married to another. Pay attention to the argument. Not just any other man, but Christ. Without being called an adulteress. In other words, the church though elect was not legally married to Christ until the death happened. That's what Paul is saying. Because death has to happen for the other marriage to be cancelled. So what was the church married to before the death of Christ? It was legally married to sin, married to death, married to condemnation, married to sin and law, married to Adam, married to the flesh. Moses as a husband, Mount Sinai, the law, the Ten Commandments must be put away in death. To give the church the legitimacy of marriage to Christ. Hear me? Hear me, someone, anybody who calls themselves a Christian. All the teaching by the Seventh-day Adventists and claim all they're doing, the moral law and stuff, it's foolishness. They have no understanding of it. There's no marriage to Christ if there's no death to the law. That's clear teaching. You cannot be saved. In other words, you cannot be saved if Christ has not put away that marriage to the law. Because the putting away of the marriage of the law is the putting away of sin, death, and condemnation. And that's why I say, one cannot just say, Jesus accomplished salvation or redemption. I agree with that. He accomplished salvation. 
But what does that mean? What did he actually do? Jesus killed Moses and put him away as God killed Moses on Mount Nebo in Deuteronomy 34 that Christ may be legally married to the church. But in doing that, Jesus must also die because, listen to me carefully, in killing Moses, Jesus must also die because he has taken his neighbor's wife. <laughs> That's beautiful teaching. And this point requires grace to understand, lest many misconstrue the gospel understanding, misconstrue the theological argument. Jesus did not sin. Jesus did not die because of any sin that he committed. That was just a gospel transaction. That's why Jesus said, the law testifies of me. So all these matters of marriage and divorce and Adultery are speaking about Christ Jesus, please, not talking about your marriages. So as I have taught in a different message, the certificate of divorce is a certificate of divorce from Moses, from the covenant of the law. It is not the certificate of divorce coming from the courts of the United States or another country. <laughs> it's a certificate of divorce given because of Moses. So Christ must be accused by the law because he has taken someone's wife. The church was married to sin, death, and condemnation, married to Moses, married to the flesh. And so for there to be an exchange, Christ must die because he's taking someone's wife. He must be accused by the law. The law has to come and fight him as it were. And that is why Moses raised the bronze serpent in the wilderness for the people who had been beaten by the fiery serpents to be healed. It's Moses who raised the bronze serpent saying it is the law that raised Christ on the cross on account of our sins. And David, this were being a faithful listener of our messages would really help you in the hearing of this message. David did the same thing. He took Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and killed him. And Uriah was a type of the law. Being a faithful and good servant of David. And yet he must die. Uriah must die. If David should have Bathsheba. Bathsheba cannot be returned to Uriah. So Uriah must die. 
But David did not die. But this sin would be paid for in the death of his son. In the death of his greater son with Bathsheba. The Lord Jesus Christ. As Nathan the prophet said to David, you shall not die. But your son born to you shall surely die. And that was a prophetic statement of the death of Christ. To do what? To pay for your sin of taking Bathsheba who was married to another man. So Christ must die. So David is Christ. And Bathsheba is a type of the church. The law, Moses must die. The covenant must die, even though Moses was a faithful servant of God. Remember also that Jesus is Judah. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is Judah. And Moses is Levi. And these are brothers who come one after the other. Number three and number four. So Jesus has taken his brother's wife of Levi, of law. And for that, Leviticus says he must be accursed. He must die. But in doing that, this is how the church got its legal rights to be called the bride of Christ. But Sheba could never be called the wife of David unless Uriah had died. That's clear. It doesn't matter how offensive it is. <laughs> A lot of people are still offended that David took Uriah and killed him because of their self-righteousness and because, 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 because they don't understand the gospel. God was preaching. I always say, God is a practical preacher. So without the death of Christ, there's no marriage, there's no legal marriage to him. God would not recognize such a marriage. Because also without death, there's no remission of sin. So the death of Christ was accomplishing a lot of things. He was giving the church the legal right to be married to him, even also as he was canceling their sin debt. So the cross is where all these things are happening. People cannot just say, say the cross, the cross. Tell me more about the cross. Expound the cross. But what happens to those who continue to dabble deep in both Christ and Moses? Mixing law and grace. As many are fond of doing. Trying to shave off the offense. Serving the two husbands. That's what a lot of, most of Christianity does. Is serving the two husbands. You see, those who mix law and grace are afraid of the offense of the gospel. They do not want to say Moses is dead. And yet they do not want to discuss, discard Jesus either. They want to have their cake and eat it too. Problem is, 
Jesus does not accept such formulas of mixing new wine and old wine. That's what he said. You're not going to mix new wine and old wine. You're not going to put new wine into old wine skins. The vessels are going to break. And you're going to lose the contents, which means there's going to be no salvation. When you mix law and grace, the contents are going to be lost. Christ Jesus does not accept double crossing. And Paul said in Galatians, if you do that, Christ profits you nothing. You have fallen from grace. You must stand with these men alone or else they are still in unbelief about who he is and what he did and what that means. But why should you be married to another man? Why should you be married to Christ? Why should you be married to another man? Paul says to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit unto God. So do you see God's wisdom and God's reason for you to die to the law? Both Jesus and the Lord died at the death of Christ. But Jesus did not remain dead. He got up, raised from the dead for the express purpose of coming back and getting married to his bride. Jesus had a wedding in his mind. Jesus in the resurrection had a wedding in his mind. Because the bride could not have her husband who remains dead. She would be called a widow. And that is what God preached already through Adam. That Adam whom God had put into deep sleep as a picture of the death of Christ, that he should be raised by God from the dead and on being raised to be united with his bride, Eve, who was formed from his side, from the shedding of his own blood, So the resurrection of both men, the first Adam and the second Adam, was so that they may be married to their brides. That they may be married to their brides. Their resurrection was unto marriage. Wonderful teaching. That's God teaching people. So getting married to Christ was to the end that we should bear fruit unto God. What is the fruit that the church bears unto God? Is it bringing the tithes and love offerings? I do not think that the fruit is good works at this level of conversation. Even though the good works were ordained of God. 
but I do not think that's the discussion at this level. The fruit to God has to be something that satisfies God. It has to be something that God eats. But not as human beings eat. I'm using it as anthropomorphic language. But it's something that satisfies him. The eating of God is the satisfaction of God. Christ Jesus bore fruit to God by his obedience to death. Obedience unto the righteousness of his people by the putting away of their sins. So our fruit is eternal life and righteousness that we bear to God Through Christ Jesus. We smell good to God. Because of Christ. We have the fragrance of Christ. Also. The fruit towards God is faith. Because apart from the death of Christ. There's not really faith that pleases God. And the old husband, the law, is not of faith. The law is not of faith and could not give faith. Also, the Holy Spirit was given because Christ Jesus had been glorified. And that means died on the cross as John said in John chapter 8. Because fruit comes first from a seed that has been planted. You can't just have fruit. You have to plant a seed into the ground. And then it has to grow and just bear fruit. So Christ has to be planted in death. And he germinated as a plant in the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ was the germination. That's what germination of seed preaches. They preach resurrection. As John records in John 12, verse 24, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. It produces much fruit. So if Christ does not die, he remains the only righteous one. But when he has died, and when he has risen, he produces much grain. He produces much fruit. And that's the fruit that we bear into God in righteousness. The grain is the fruit that Jesus produced for the salvation of his people, for his people to eat, that they may live eternal life. 
So the fruitfulness of Christ in his death and resurrection is the fruit that all the elect bear to God by way of the imputation of his righteousness. Okay? But what was bad about the former husband? That he should be killed. And that question gives us the side B of the necessity of the dissolution of the first marriage through the death of Christ. Or through the death of the former husband. If the wife or woman should be rescued from the issues that were caused or that came with the first marriage, there must be first a proper dissolution, a proper cancelling of that marriage according to the law. But there was need for this marriage to be dissolved. There was need for this marriage to be dissolved. God never meant for this marriage to last long. God never meant for this marriage to the law to remain. What does he say? For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. What does that mean? To be in the flesh. It is not what many think it is in this context. And Paul will explain. He says, for when we were in the flesh, and that speaks to some particular time period, and in reference to a particular people, because not all have been translated out from the flesh. Not everyone has been translated out of the flesh. There was a time where and when one was in the flesh. But the when also implies that the brethren are no longer under the flesh, but are, but are under something else which Paul would define. He says, in that time of the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit unto death, that is, to condemnation. So in the flesh, the sinful passions got their strength. They were activated, they were aroused, by the law, and were at work in our members of the flesh to bear, to produce fruit to death. And that tells us the function of the law, that the law was given, among other things, for the bearing of fruit unto death because of sin. In other words, as long as one remains married to the law, they remain in the flesh. 
And as long as they remain in the flesh, they will continue to bear fruit unto death. Do you see the connection? You remain under the law, you remain under flesh. You remain under flesh, you continue to bear fruit unto death. So the law does not and cannot cause the sinner to bear fruit unto God as for them to live. So this is what is happening to one who is married to this former husband from whom they need redemption by Christ. Redemption by way of the dissolution of the marriage. The marriage has to be dissolved. If that marriage is is not dissolved, then there's no salvation. Understand me? But let us hear Paul explain clearly and tell us the identity of this husband. And we're going to go to verse 6 of Romans 7. And that is our last verse. And that tells you that we are close to getting done. Paul says in verse 6, But now we have been delivered from the law. But now, that is the reality of things for all who are the brethren, the redeemed. They are in the but now. And that is saying a change has happened, but now. And the change that has happened is that we, the brethren, have been delivered, have been set free from the law, set free from that husband. That's clear teaching to me. We have had our bad marriage to the law dissolved, not made better, not reformed. No, it has been dissolved by way of the death of Christ. But the death of Christ did not create widows. Rather, it created another marriage ceremony by reason of his resurrection. The death of Christ then was and is the event that severed our marriage to things law, to things that bear fruit unto death. And that means being in the flesh is the same thing as saying being under the marriage to the law. That's what being in the flesh means. And that to say the flesh, sin, law, death, Moses, condemnation are in the same category. And they are bad to the sinner as they bear fruit unto death. None of these things are good for you as a sinner. None of these things are good for you. And there's nothing that you can do to get yourself out of this. There's nothing that you can do to cut yourself from sin, from the flesh, from the law, from death. There's nothing that you can do. It has to be done by someone else. And that's what God is saying. So we were delivered from the law. 
But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by. So the redeemed were delivered from the law by way of the death of another. And Paul says, having died to what we were held by. And the language of died to what we were held by is a negative positive statement. It is both a negative and positive statement. We died to something that was bad for us. But in that death, we were also set free. So in the negative, the statement is speaking to a captive, oppressive situation, an abusive situation even, when Paul says, to that which we were held by, to that which oppressed us. And this oppressive situation was being forced by the law as the power, as the taskmaster, because the power of sin is in the law. And we escaped this relationship. So we have escaped this relationship. This particular condition. Through death. Which is how one escapes the problems of this world in general. But who's death in particular? Because this is not just any other death. It was only by the death of Christ that the whole church, the redeemed of Christ, is kept from prison. He came to set the captives free. He is kept from the judgment of the law. They is kept from the bad marriage to the law. They is kept from sin and death. And if it was by the death of Christ that we escaped, it means God reckons the whole church body as having died with Christ when he died. So the death of Christ was the dying of all who are in Christ. As his resurrection was the resurrection also of the whole body, the church. The scriptures even say we were and we are now seated with Christ in the heavenly places, even though we are still here. So that again is an emphasis of our union with Christ. And knowing all this, it is important to note that one is not delivered from the flesh by being a moral person. That is not how it works. One is delivered from the flesh only by the way of the death of Christ. As long as one remains under the law, it doesn't matter how moral they are, they are still fleshly and will continue to bear fruit unto death. That is all that is saying. Morality cannot deliver you from a bad marriage. It will condemn you still. Christ alone, Christ alone. His death alone. So one must be delivered. 
one must be set free from the law. And we have already been delivered so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oddness of the letter. So this is the end of the delivery that we should serve in the newness of the spirit. The death of Christ and our union with him in that death and resurrection opened a way for the redeemed to serve God in the newness of the spirit, in the newness of the new covenant, which is a far superior way to serve God than the oddness of the latter. And the oddness of the latter is a clear reference to the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the founding document of the covenant of the law. A lot of people don't know that. You could not have the covenant of the law apart from the Ten Commandments because it is they that were in the Ark of the Covenant, the two tablets of stone. Yeah? And do you see the use of words and language here, the contrasts that are being made? Paul is not mixing the spirit with the letter and saying they are kosher together. Rather, he is separating them. He is making distinctions and making the emphasis of those distinctions and saying the law is not the way for sinners. It is a bad marriage. It leads to bearing fruit unto death. But there is a better and superior way which I am now declaring to you. And it is that the redeemed had their marriage dissolved to all things law. Because as a husband, the law had no inheritance. Paul teaches that the inheritance of salvation is not of law. The law had no fruit for us to give to God or it had no fruit to give to God on behalf of the sinner. Christ alone, by his death, has brought in, ushered in a better way, a better marriage, bearing acceptable fruit to God, serving God in the newness of the spirit, not in the oddness of the letter, for the letter kills. So we see then that the spirit, the newness of life, the bearing of fruit are things that came by the death of Christ and they are in their own separate category. And to serve God in the newness of the spirit implies to relate to God to approach God in a different way than the law, in the merits of Christ Jesus, in his blood, and by his covenant that he established, the marriage that he honors. And this does not mean that those that, married, that are married to Christ do not sin anymore. That is not the discussion. The serving of God in the newness of the spirit is not speaking to sinlessness. It's speaking to how we now relate to God on account of the death of Christ.
So the discussion is that this is the relationship that all the redeemed people of God sustain in relation to the law, sustain to God on account of Christ. Christ has set them free from a bad marriage. He dissolved that marriage for them by his own death that they may serve God in a better way by being married to him. The redeemed bear fruit unto God, all of them, which thing they could never do under the law, because the latter only bears fruit unto death. Christ bears fruit unto life. The law bears fruit unto death. And to some, this will come as an anti-law idea, an anti-nomen idea, to separate Christ from Moses, to separate the redeemed from Moses. But as I said, it is because of their own unbelief and there's nothing that I can do to cure their unbelief if God does not help them. The redeemed cannot serve two husbands, Christ and Moses, as is widely proclaimed. Moses remains to minister death to the flesh because that was his ministry. The ministry of death and condemnation, as Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Christ alone ministers fruit unto God on behalf of his people. And we have been married to him even through his death and his resurrection. And everything said, what Paul is saying, and what I am saying is this. Christ, not Moses, is our rule of life. Christ, not the law, is our rule of life. So reckon yourself as having died to the law. Reckon yourself free. The law shall not have dominion. Sin does not have dominion on you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Amen. All right, we are done. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many words that have been spoken. I believe faithful words, if I've understood the scriptures correctly, that the redeemed of the Lord relate to you not by law, but by grace, by Christ, by his death. They died to that marriage. They died to their former husband. Even sin, death and condemnation that we married to them because of the flesh, because of Adam even. But we have this wonderful marriage with Christ in which we now bear fruit unto God, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of life, 
We thank you, we honor you for revealing all these wonderful things to us. I pray that your people will be blessed and edified. May you keep them in their going in and out. And may you gather us again. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good people. A lot of words that have been spoken, but these are necessary. And this is what we use to interpret the Old Testament. This understanding is what we take. Go to the Old Testament and start hunting for the gospel nuggets that are hidden in the stories. Okay, the, the Old Testament and the New, they are saying the same thing. But they are saying it different. All right, it's God's message.